Okay, good afternoon, good morning, good night, wherever you are, and welcome to another conversation about COVID-19 sustainability and the future of business. I am joined here today by the Dean of the Sauter School of Business and a Professor of Economics, uh, Robert Hillsley, and he's here to talk about what's been going on uh, at the business school and his perspectives on leadership and and the role of business in addressing this COVID crisis. So thank you to, to Dean Bob for joining us today. And I will jump right in and ask you, what lessons have you learned uh, from running a big ship like a business school? What, what have you been learning from COVID over the last few months? You know, well, one of the things that I think is uh, really interesting that we have learned is just how adaptable people are in this environment. Mm -hmm. um, our school, like almost all educational institutions, had to completely transform the organization over just a few days. So all courses went online, all people started working at home. And of course, there's a lot of kind of redesigning and reimagining the way the university has to work in this environment. But the speed with which people were able to make those kinds of changes was really astounding to me. And I think that's a pretty common reaction among people who've been involved in leading schools uh, across the world is, you know, when it came time to really step up and make change, uh, people were uh, were right there and ready to do it. And so, do you think do you think there's something we can learn from that as we? Because sometimes innovation in the academy are like it's a, it's almost like a scary word. It's like there's the concept of innovation, but actually doing it it, it can be slow. There's a lot of uh, a lot of work, a lot of change management to be done. But it's amazing how with a catalyst like COVID, we're able to just accelerate an idea. There's almost this willingness to experiment that's never really been. Uh, present before. And I'm part of me, I'm trying to figure out like, okay, I know a crisis is a crisis, but what can we learn from this in terms of like, hey, the next time an interesting idea comes along or the next time a crisis comes along, do you think people's willingness to experiment is going to evolve or is this just like a blip in the radar? That's a good question. You know, sometimes I joke with people by saying that the university is only a little less nimble than the Vatican. <laughs> That's yeah. about how long it takes to get things done around here sometimes. But you know, in this case, part of what has happened, I think, is that there was a lot of infrastructure and a lot of the technology that was already kind of latent in the universities. And it was kind of sitting there waiting to be fully utilized. Mm -hmm. And COVID was just the trigger that sort of set that thing afire. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, in a sense, the speed reflects the fact that there was already a lot of um, capability sitting there unutilized. And uh, it's forced us to find ways to, you know, bring all of that to bear on uh, on the educational mission. Hmm. Hmm. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, because the thing that I I wonder about, and I'm sure all students, everyone, like it's kind of like the 800 pound gorilla in the room is like, so how does education actually change as a result of this? And I know it's very premature to even speculate on it, but it, it's it's difficult, I think, sometimes to imagine what going back to business is as usual, right? That like, oh, well. Because so many students are going to enjoy certain aspects of asynchronous learning, or I think talking to faculty, they're going to enjoy traveling less maybe for, for conferences and academic events and all those sorts of things. Like, so like whether, whether we revert back and I won't ask you to speculate because I know uh, you're in a position you can't, but it's certainly worth noting. Um, but so from, from your perspective, like seeing, being at sort of uh, steering this ship of all of this change and, and, and helping take this latent capacity and all of these different courses and, and graduate and undergraduate programs, I'm curious if, if you, you've had any kind of aha moments as a leader in terms of what is it like to nudge people forward in the right direction? Like what, what, what kind of voice you had to assume or what kind of perspective you really felt uh, was most important to share with folks? That's an interesting question. I guess um, I'd offer a couple of observations. One is that 
um, you know, we have relied extensively on the culture of the organization to handle some of those kinds of issues for us. And one of the things about having a really strong culture, you know, where people are deeply engaged in the organization, they sort of believe in the mission and, and are sort of fully on board is that when it came time to change, you could rely on all of the strength that was kind of built into the culture to take part of that, to take care of part of that. Hmm. So that was uh, pretty powerful. But as, um, as, a, as a leader and as a, one of the things I've been trying to do is um, communicate more about, um, you know, larger issues about, um, the way we relate to each other and about the need to connect with other people and to not be afraid to reach out if you're feeling isolated and are uh, having difficulty in some manner, uh, either with the isolation or something in your personal life. You know, we're also cognizant of the fact that the virus is reaching into our organization as it is all organizations. And so trying to keep people sort of connected to our common humanity and uh, get also help them um, keep alive, you know, the sort of a narrative about the future, which can be positive. Mm. You know, this is not going to go on forever. It will pass. We will come out of the other side of a different world, a different mm. culture, a different organization. But I think it's, it's important, especially now that we're kind of through the crisis phase to start to think about, you know, well, what's the strategy that gets us to whatever we want to look like when this is all sort of over. And so, I've been doing a combination of trying to keep people connected to personal issues and and issues that I think are important for all of us, uh, empathy, you know, humanity, that kind of stuff, uh, but also trying to get people thinking a little bit about how they want to help shape what uh, our organization and by extension, you know, the culture and the community is going to look like after after the worst of the crisis at least has passed. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, those are, those are beautiful lessons, sort of like that if you have that culture before something comes along, boy, can it ever help you on the other side. And so worth investing in that culture. But that is the, so true. But the other part that you mentioned, the humanity, like connection and isolation. And like, I, I just remember, I know you've been regularly sort of communicating with staff and faculty with your sort of weekly emails, debriefs. And I, when I saw you recommending that we listen to everything in its right place by Radiohead, I was like, <laughs> Who is Bob? This is amazing. I love that album. I love that song. I can't believe he's recommending this. And it was just, for me, it was this connection. And I think when I see the leaders that people are sort of resonating with, uh, it's not the ones who are just kind of like reading out the PR pieces and and just kind of going through the like obvious executive coaching. It's people who just show some vulnerability, show who they are. And I think that's what those are kind of the leaders that people want to go to go to fight with or go to battle with and, and, and address a crisis. And so it's been, I don't know, personally, it's been kind of nice to see that leadership emerging across our organization, that, that common humanity start yeah, to well, emerge. So we're certainly all vulnerable right now. Yeah. And I think we're all cognizant of that fact. So yeah. may as well share it a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you mentioned like l larger crises because, you you know, when we talked prior to COVID, like a year ago, I think we had a we had a MBA course coming in July. And we talked about this, this thesis that you'd been advancing that 
look, there's these huge challenges in the world around food and water and stability and security and, and climate and indigenous relations. And just and these issues aren't going away in the time of COVID. It's just that they feel somehow like they've been blotted out by the massive short-term urgency of this crisis. But I'm wondering, as you watch the world react as your organization or perhaps the business community, whether your message or thinking around that sort of notion of responsible leadership has evolved, that I think fundamentally at its heart was this balance between the public sector and the private sector, where we saw this need for a more aggressive private sector in addressing climate, food security, water, all these kinds of issues identified. But now we're suddenly seeing this emergent and very strong public sector. And so has, has your thinking evolved on that? Or do you think the private sector is actually going to learn even more from COVID-19 about leaning in and addressing some of these challenges? Well, that's another great question, Justin. Um, you know, I'd say it's a bit early yet to see what sort of lessons the private sector can draw from all this. Um, and the sort of responsible leadership theme, you know, the thing that I've been trying to um, have conversations about with people uh, over many years is the, um, the importance of um, people in leadership roles sort of taking a broad view of their responsibilities and thinking not just about the impacts of their organization or their decisions on you know, financial metrics and the things that we would usually associate it with private sector success, but just more broadly, think of um, a leader as a steward of all of the resources that an organization comes into contact with. So, you know, workers, customers, the environment, you know, there's a, obviously it's a very, very long list of things that one could consider. And I think the challenge is to consider as many of those things as you can mm. when trying to make decisions. And mm. You know, a crisis like this, it really highlights the the interdependence of all of us in every sense. You know, having a pandemic is literally a problem of externalities and interdependence in the community, but we also see how countries are interdependent, you know, mm -hmm. in some cases in negative ways through travel. But, and this is perhaps more relevant to your question, you know, also in positive ways through collaboration around viruses, the creation of therapeutics, best practices in healthcare. Um, so I think there's um, there's definitely a, a role, obviously, for the, for the private sector to play here in helping us navigate this crisis. And I see uh, business leaders taking a very responsible approach to these kinds of problems. I guess the thing that's been upsetting to me, and I think upsetting to many people, is that there's also this kind of bifurcation in the political realm where you know there are a number of people who are involved in um, in leading government organizations and leading different levels of government who've been fantastic and I'd be delighted maybe we can talk a little bit about that but we also see these just horrible examples of sort of misguided leadership in um, certain political quarters and you can see the absolutely horrible damaging impact that those kinds of approaches mm -hmm. to leadership especially in a time of crisis can have mm -hmm. so you know i'm uh, i'm very hopeful that the collaboration in both internationally and between some some companies for example in pharmaceuticals will be kind of a template for for handling or contributing to the solutions to other kinds of crises as well mm. Uh, but yeah, it's a, you know, it's a big lift. There's a lot to do here and it's not at all clear yet. I don't think 
exactly how these issues are going to uh, finally resolve themselves. Well, and and you, you touch on a really interesting point where it's like we've definitely seen some some examples of what not to do in leadership and some examples of of what to do. But we also but we've also seen like strong leaders and leaders that we rely on. Like I was I was su- surprised to learn about like efforts even inside the EU for from countries like Germany and France to put like export restrictions on their own personal protective equipment, even in countries like Canada, where we might be happy with our public health leadership and the politicization of COVID-19 hasn't really happened. Uh, we've still seen this pushback against, um, uh, you know, or I guess a push towards redomiciling economic activity. And so there's almost going to be this, this policy push to say we need redundancy in our supply chains because that's going to be important. And private sector being like, no, let's continue to like it, develop and strengthen the connections we have between countries. And so there's one one tension there, and how that resolves, I have no idea. Right? It's, it's uh, there's 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 really interesting tension. But I, I guess I want to focus back to your earlier comment about examples of leadership. So, you know, I, we. I think we all know the examples of leadership they, that we've seen. It, they sent, they, it tends to be that if you look at the countries right now that are having the worst outbreaks, they all tend to be led by authoritarian uh, males who are questioning science. And, what, and, and we don't have to just point to uh, you know, our country to the uh, neighbors to the south. We can actually look to c- countries in South America or even uh, countries like Russia where you're having the worst outbreaks coinciding with this almost um, – the willful ignorance or politicization of this issue. But in British Columbia, I felt kind of proud to be a Canadian uh, more than once in, in the midst of this crisis. And I know there's a lot of countries that people are feeling proud. So what examples of, of good leadership, what's, what's sort of inspired you in the midst of all of this? Well, you know, I, I really agree with you that I think the um, Canadian um, political and public health leaders have distinguished themselves through this. And there's a couple of things that I would point out about that. One is, let's just talk about BC for an example. So here, the the public health officer, the provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has become kind of a celebrity. You know, she has her own shoes designed for her by Fluvog, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's been so impressive to me about, um, there's two things I wanted to comment on. One is what she has done in her role as the health officer is, you know, she's been you know, carefully evidence-based in her communication to people. She's sort of stuck to the science that she understands it and she has a very, you know, comprehensive understanding of those issues. She's been um, very transparent. She's been uh, very communicative. She's been a very clear communicator and she's been highly empathetic in the way that she provides information to people. And I think that combination in this environment is is just really powerful, mm-hmm. sort of just being straight with people, telling them what you know, uh, providing as much information as you can and trying to connect with them about the difficulties that they're having through through a pandemic like this. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's been really impressive and I have uh, nothing but praise for what Dr. Henry's done in that regard. But I would say another thing that's significant is that the premier here in BC, uh, John Horgan, you know, had the confidence to let her lead Mm. and he didn't have to be involved. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think you mentioned the sort of some of the difficulties that we've seen in other countries. And one of the things that seems to be characteristic of those difficulties with me to, to me is that, um, you know, they've, their circumstances where the leadership was unable to get itself out of the way Mm -hmm. and let the public health authorities manage the problem. I mean, the most egregious problem example is obviously in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. 
where I don't even want to get into that, but you, you can see I'll let <laughs> yeah, you use. Yeah, you know what that's like. People but, are yeah, people are aware. I think our audience is uh, is pretty aware <laughs> of what's going on. We don't need to comment too much. So, but if they had just let um, you know Dr. Fauci and his colleagues at the CDC handle it mm -hmm. and stayed out of the way, you know, you might have been able to um, get on a much better path for the pandemic in the, in the U.S. And yeah. I think, as you said, we've been really fortunate here. And I think the leadership has done just a really nice job mm. of navigating all the complexities of communicating with people in, the, in this environment. Well, and, and, and I guess, I mean, I'm from British Columbia myself and, you know, third generation of my family to attend UBC. So I'm very proud to, to have come from here. And so this, this, this course and this, uh, this, this session that we're doing with students online is, is unique in that normally we would have a lot of them coming here. And, and I think that Dr. Bonnie Henry and, and John Horgan, our premier's response is very, uh, symbolic or representative of kind of the culture here. So I'm wondering if you could speak to, to maybe just like, what, the, what those values really kind of represent and, and maybe give a little perspective to these students who would have been traveling here, who would have been had the, had the time to get to know our campus or get to know our community. And now we're having to, to sort of, you know, uh, share ourselves in, in a frankly less compelling way as, as hard as we try. It's less compelling. Uh, what, do you, what do you think those values really are that's represented by our, by our school and our institution? Um, well, I think um, some of the things that really distinguish um, UBC are, are common elements to the culture more generally here, maybe just on the West Coast of North America, uh, even in, extending into the U.S., but mm. uh, certainly here in British Columbia. And uh, it's, um, you know, collaboration, respect for diversity, um, sort of collegiality, sort of um, embracing the public interest and common interests and not always requiring that they be subservient to private interest. Hmm. And that sort of cultural norm, it, you know, is very, very useful in managing a problem like this, where really the, um, your ability to alter the path of the virus is dependent upon individual behavior. Hmm. And so if, you're, if you get into an environment where, you know, people are unwilling for whatever reason to sort of subjugate their own private interests for some part of the public interest, it's just really, really hard to manage. And here I think uh, people are cooperative in every sense of the word. And that's, uh, that's been, uh, I think, a very positive attribute of this environment, uh, managing through a crisis like this. Yeah, it reminds me of one of these, everyone's trying to think, there are little, a lot of folks discussion, conversation in political science. It's like, what does COVID teach us about democracies versus authoritarian countries? And like, maybe it's only authoritarian countries with extremely strict lockdowns and mandatory quarantine. And you're wearing electronic monitoring bracelets if you're asked to be in quarantine. And we're, these are being held up as examples of success. But one of the, the ideas that I was reading about was that actually it's countries where there's trust in government. That are managing this most effectively. It's not whether it's more authoritarian or more democratic. It's just whether people are willing to listen to government, and and sometimes that happens in authoritarian regimes, and sometimes that happens in democratic regimes. But in places where people are inherently told to distrust the government, right? I'm, I'm reminded of a certain American president in 1982 who said, like the most frightening words you could ever hear is, "Excuse me, ma'am, I'm from the government." 
I was like, well, that's not aged particularly well in, in the time of, of, of COVID, right? So it's amazing how often we, we return to them as a counterexample, but it, I think they're, they're going to pay a price for that, that attitude because now suddenly the likelihood of a second wave or a longer infection or the inability to identify and quarantine and isolate is, uh, you know, is going to be significantly compromised by all this. But listen, I know, I, I know I'm running short on time here, so I want to ask you two uh, final questions. <laughs> okay. Uh, one, a, a lesson for the business community, if the private sector could learn one thing from all of this, uh, you know, and you had a magic wand and, and you, you could impart unto them one big lesson from the COVID-19 crisis, what would you hope the private sector learns? You know, um, it's a little early, Justin, mm -hmm. you know, to know exactly what the lessons need to be for any of us, I think, here. I would say right now, the phase that we are in is one where the key is to monitor and adapt because none of us know where this is going and circumstances are changing very, very quickly. So all organizations, public and private, need to be sort of carefully monitoring conditions in the community, conditions in the economy, conditions in the public health system, and then trying to take best response actions as you go along. So having a plan that extends more than about, you know, three months right now is maybe not such a great idea. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to continually revise what you consider to be the appropriate actions and uh, policies that an organization will take in response to what happens. You know, what I've been talking to a lot of people in China over the last um, few weeks, uh, alumni and leaders and communities and organizations there. And one of the things they've been talking about is, you know, they're kind of, what, five weeks maybe ahead of us in this process, something like that, maybe six. And so they've opened up and, uh, you know, things have returned partially back to some semblance of what it was prior to the virus. Uh, but the, the problem they're all having is restoring confidence mm. so that people um, are just uncomfortable interacting still and i think that's totally understandable but i think that's kind of the next also another step of this process now as you get through the sort of crisis phase if you're careful you get the um the sort of pandemic managed a bit you get the caseload down you get the number of people in the icus down and so on and then you can start to reopen but people need to see that it's safe mm. and so there's another sort of set of issues involved there in creating confidence in people that it's okay to resume some of the activities that they had previously experienced. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we're headed, I think, over the next little while is some of the restrictions are going to come off, but people are going to be reticent to get out and do things. And so... But I, I do like that idea of constantly monitoring and adapting because one of the things that we, I think a lot of people were speculating about about the 2020s is that it was going to be a very disruptive decade any way you looked at it. Whether it was, you know, changes in consumer sentiment associated with like the climate crisis or whether it was acceleration of technological disruption of the workforce or whether it was breakdown in geopolitical orders or trade or international institutions where suddenly everything's different and I better be ready to monitor and adapt. And so, I appreciate the point that it's too early to know really what the lesson is, but even that short-term lesson, that short-term ability to monitor and adapt is going to be a very useful feature of an organization, even when we're in something that feels a little more normal. So I, I, I just want to point that out briefly. But now my one final question to you, what's one personal habit? Now I know COVID has changed everybody's lives and how they live. <laughs> but what's one thing that you've done a little differently uh, that you hope to hold on to uh, in a post-COVID world? 
you know, I would say that uh, it's something that I haven't luckily had to had to employ yet. But, you know, I would for my entire life, uh, I have taken a somewhat cavalier attitude toward being sick. Mm. So if, if I got a virus or whatever, you know, I would go to work my, my entire life. And I think, you know, that is one thing that the public health authorities are telling us absolutely we cannot do. Mm. So we have to create mechanisms for people to work at home when they're not well. Yeah. And uh, that's certainly something that I intend to do going forward. Is, and I think we all have to, is that, you know, um, obviously continue the hygiene practices and things that we've learned more about. But if you're not well, stay home. And that is going to be really important to managing this going forward. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting lesson because maybe we'll do a better job just managing the, the flu and cold exactly. season, exactly. right? In general, because there was this kind of attitude. It's like, well, I have to have a stiff upper lip and show up to work. And there was actually maybe, I'm sure some economist has figured out that it, that probably ended up actually costing the economy more money and lost productivity yeah. uh, because the person didn't want to admit they were sick. And so some strange, some strange interactions between uh, personal attitudes and corporate behavior there. Anyways, Thank you, Bob. Really appreciate the time uh, that you took today. My pleasure, Justin. Thank you. And welcome, everybody. Welcome. Uh, too bad you can't be in Vancouver with us all. We look forward to welcoming you here in person sometime, but I'm, I hope you enjoy the course. I'm sure you will. Thanks so much. 